Israelites have been through a lot since they entered the land of Canaan. So let's review the last 500 years of Israel's history on The Bible Brief. Want more Bible learning content like this? Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media. Links are in the show notes. Long-suffering. It's an old word, maybe one you haven't heard in a while, if ever. Long-suffering. It sounds like it might mean suffering for a long time, but that's not really the meaning. It's a term that describes God's long patience toward people. He's long-suffering toward people, people who constantly rebel against Him. He has lots of patience, and he's always waiting for people to turn back to him. Were God not long-suffering, Israel would have been totally decimated by God countless times throughout its history. After all, the nation has seemed to rebel even more than it's remained faithful to God. In fact, since they came out of Egypt in about 1500 BC, they have only ever had decades here or there of something even resembling faithfulness. And those decades quickly fade to memory as the people continually turn to false idols, foreign women, or fake worship. God's justice would demand their immediate destruction were it not for His quality of being long-suffering. In many ways, as we read of the seemingly countless individuals and people in the Bible, we're reading a story less about these people and more about God. We're seeing all the awful and intimate sins of people, and we're seeing God's response. More often than not, His response is to be long-suffering. Rather than immediate judgment, He delays it or tempers it in such a way as to allow for a turn. God doesn't want to destroy His people. He wants to turn them back to Him. The long-suffering God will wait, even if it means delaying deserved judgment. Joshua had led the people into the Promised Land, and through his godly leadership, the people had defeated many of the cities of the land of Canaan. He apportioned the land to the twelve tribes of Israel, and before he died, he left them with final words, echoing those words of Moses years before. Joshua essentially said this, Love Yahweh, follow the law, and take the land. The mandate was known, and Joshua soon died. After his death, the nation faced a leadership vacuum that was initially filled by the tribe of Judah. But in this new age of rebellion, the people didn't heed the instructions of Joshua. They stopped conquering the land, they intermarried with the peoples of the land, and they worshipped false gods instead of Yahweh. As the people were oppressed by enemy powers, they would cry out to God for deliverance. God in His mercy would raise up a judge to save the people from their oppression and the people would be faithful for a time before they would start the cycle over again, turning away from Yahweh to follow false gods. This cyclical nature of the judges' era was ultimately a time of national failure. They didn't obey God, they didn't follow the law, 
and they didn't continue conquering the land. It was an era where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yet in the latter part of this 300-year period, we saw a glimmer of hope. Ruth and Boaz had a child named Obed, who would have a child named Jesse, who would in turn have a child named David. From the little town of Bethlehem, a dynasty would rise. However, from another town, another king would rise first. Gibeah was shown to be perhaps the worst city in all of Israel. It was in Gibeah where the men of the city had their way with a woman traveling through and then left her for dead on the doorstep of the man she was traveling with. It was Gibeah in the tribal territory of Benjamin that caused a major battle between the other tribes in Benjamin, leaving the tribe decimated. A tribe that ended up with less than a thousand men to perpetuate the name of their forefather. The period of the judges comes to a close with the prophet Samuel, a man who grew up in the tabernacle before leading the nation as a judge, a man who'd grown up under the tutelage of the priest Eli, whose family would eventually be removed from the priesthood due to the sins of Eli and his sons. Samuel led the nation in a Godward direction for much of his life, but as the people of Israel see the unimpressive sons of Samuel, they do something that God foretold over 300 years prior. They ask for a king, a king to be like other nations, a king to lead them in battle. Samuel, for his part, warns the people on behalf of Yahweh. He warns them of taxation, conscription, and the seizure of their land by the king. But the people won't listen. They want a visible king instead of God's invisible presence in his judges. And so God gives them a king, just the sort of king that the people want. Samuel soon finds the man who's out looking for his lost donkeys. He's a man from Gibeah in Benjamin's territory, and he's a tall, strong man like the people want. He will be the one to lead them in battle against their foes. And he does just that. After Saul is anointed king, he leads the people to save the city of Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites, and the people rejoice in their new king. Perhaps, they thought, finally they had a leader they could follow. Saul, however, begins to stray as he finds Israel at war with the powerful forces in Canaan, the Philistines and the Amalekites. When fighting the Philistines, he makes an unauthorized sacrifice, and when fighting the Amalekites, he disobeys God by not bringing the enemy to complete destruction. Saul's heart proves to be disobedient, and God rejects him as king over Israel. The prophet Samuel says to Saul, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Further, Samuel says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's kingship and dynasty will come to an end in favor of a man after God's heart. David then rises in Israel, anointed by Samuel as a young shepherd boy in Bethlehem, 
David comes to defeat the nine-foot Philistine named Goliath, and his fame increases in the nation. The people sing songs like this. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David has ten thousands. Saul immediately becomes jealous of the young man, and soon begins several attempts at trying to kill David. It gets so bad that Saul's son Jonathan, David's best friend, tells David to flee from Saul. As a result, David spends the next several years in various places in and around Israel as he lives as a fugitive from Saul. After a time, however, the Philistines again rise up against Saul and Israel, and a great battle occurs at Gilboa, a battle that leaves Israel defeated, Jonathan dead, and Saul dead. After 40 years, Saul's kingship comes to an end, and David now has space to rise. David first becomes king over Judah for seven years, before becoming king over all twelve tribes after victory in a war against one of Saul's sons for supremacy. David's reign over Israel is marked by amazing success. He becomes a great example of one who faithfully follows the words of Moses and Joshua. Love Yahweh, follow the law, and take the land. David wins territory never previously held by Israel, and victories pile up as David depends upon Yahweh to fight for the nation. As a king from the tribe of Judah, surely people wondered if he was the promised one who would rule forever. David's love for God is such that he even wants to build a house for him, a house for the Ark of the Covenant, a place for God to dwell. In response to this, God makes great promises to David in the Davidic Covenant, a covenant involving a dynasty of David's line, a throne for his descendants to rule from, and an everlasting king who will finally rule forever over Israel. A dynasty, a throne, and an everlasting king. Yet even with these amazing promises from God, David falls in a dramatic way. David covets the wife of another man, commits adultery with her, and murders the man. He violates at least three of the Ten Commandments, and God once again shows his long-suffering nature. Rather than destroy David on the spot, he instead gives consequences to David for the rest of his reign. His son conceived in adultery dies. Another son usurps his throne for a time, and violence marks his house for many years. While David returns to faithfulness for much of the rest of his life, he does still sin in another way. In the latter part of his reign, David conducts a census of Israel, and realizing his sin, he comes to God for mercy. God allows David a choice of judgments, and David chooses to have God carry out a plague upon the nation, reasoning that God is merciful even in his judgments. God does pour out the judgment, but also uses this as an occasion to mark the spot where his house will be built. David had wanted to build God a house, but it would be his son Solomon who would build the magnificent temple. Solomon reigns after David, and his kingship is consumed with temple building. David had prepared materials and received plans from God, and Solomon would do the building. After seven years, the magnificent temple is completed, and God fills it with the cloud of His glory. God has chosen His place to dwell, among His people, and the temple in Jerusalem. The kingdom celebrates and enjoys prosperity and blessing for many years. Solomon dominates the land from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates River, and he sets up trade routes that further enrich the kingdom. However, 
Solomon, for all his wisdom granted to him by God to lead the people, makes foolish decisions. He violates all four major commands for kings of Israel. He enlarges his cavalry. He enriches himself with gold. He takes many wives, and he fails to obey Yahweh. For this, God announces that the kingdom will be torn apart, with ten tribes given to another, and the tribe of Judah only being left to David's house. The golden age of Israel is about to end. For the remainder of Solomon's days, there's relative peace in the kingdom. But immediately upon his death, crisis. Solomon's son Rehoboam attempts to rule over all twelve tribes, but the ten northern tribes reject his rule in favor of an Ephraimite named Jeroboam. The kingdom splits in an earth-shattering way, and constant war replaces the hard-won peace. David's house is left with only a small territory, and the Davidic covenant looks like its fulfillment is in question. How could a forever king come out of such devastation? The kingdom demonstrates both the best and the worst of men. It shows the ugliness of rejecting God in King Saul, the blessing of honoring God in King David, and the tragedy of apathy in King Solomon. But perhaps the king demonstrates the same thing that the judges era did with all its straying. The same God who raised up judges for Israel is the very same God who gave Israel their greatest kings. And this God, Yahweh, is long-suffering. Not for 10 years, 20 years, or 200 years, but for millennia. Patient so that his imperfect people will turn toward him in faith. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Join us next time as we begin our trek through the kings of the north and south, some faithful, some more wicked than ever. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023